Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Emily St. John Mandel. Her novels include The Glass Hotel, which was selected by President Barack Obama as one of his favorite books of 2020, and was also selected by me as one of my favorite books of 2020, an endorsement that surely carries as much weight as President Obama's, and was shortlisted The Glass Hotel for the Scotiabank Giller Prize. She's also the author of Station Eleven, which was a finalist for a National Book Award and the Penn Faulkner Award, and won the 2015 Arthur C. Clarke Award, among other honors. Her new book is Sea of Tranquility, which is published by our friends at Knopf. Emily, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It is an honor to have you here. And first, Emily, uh, I feel like this is almost the same thing I said the last time we spoke for The Glass Hotel. But wow, this book is great with a capital. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for writing it with a capital great. Um, it will be a contender for my best book of 2022. So first, congratulations. Thank um, you very much. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, the first thing I want to ask you about, Emily, is interviews, such as the one we are doing right now. Uh, you <laughs> you write about a book tour in this mm -hmm. novel, Sea of Tranquility. Um, an author who wrote a book about a pandemic who was on a book tour specifically. Uh, I know I was guilty of asking you about writing a book about a pandemic during a <laughs> pandemic the last time we spoke, right? because how could I not? Um, this is something that happens often to the writer character in your novel. My question, Emily, is amongst all of the press that you do, um, you, Emily St. John Mandel, not the character in your novel, how many questions are repetitive and do you enjoy the predictability of such questions or do you wish that someone would ask you a question that would make your head spin in a good way, of course? <laughs> you know what? I swing back and forth. Um, and I'm going to mm -hmm. preface this by saying I feel kind of bad that I've made interviewers feel bad with this book. That was, <laughs> no, that was not no. the project. Yeah. It's just a side effect. Mm -hmm. um, it varies a little bit, to be honest. There's a real pleasure in an unexpected question. At the same time, you get kind of tired on tour just because traveling is tiring. So sometimes if you're really tired, there is uh, something kind of nice about a familiar question. You're like, I've got this. I, I thought up a, an eloquent answer three cities ago. Let me just mm -hmm. say it. Um, underpinning all of it for me is a deep sense of gratitude where, you know, I just feel like it's extraordinary to get to live this life and do this job. And I really don't mind repetitive questions. It's absolutely fine. You know, it, it sometimes mm. it sometimes feels like um, I don't know, like Billy Joel getting up to play the piano man for the nine millionth time. But like, what a privilege yeah. to get to do that! It's amazing. <laughs> so yeah, it's yeah, fine. I, I really don't mind. Good. Well, thank you so much, Emily. Uh, my next question for you is: Are you a time traveler? And if you were, would you be able to tell me? <laughs> I would not be able to tell you. I'd get in a lot yeah. of trouble with the Time Institute if that were the case. Right, right. right. That's, that's kind of what I expected you to say. Um, well, I want to flesh that out a little later, but for now, I want to talk to you about genre fiction, especially sci-fi. Uh, one of my favorite authors, a local author to us here in Raleigh, uh, who I won't name, but who has won several Hugos and Nebulas and the like, gets very angry when books that, in his mind, 
are clearly science fiction are marketed as literary fiction. He right. feels like, and I am paraphrasing his feelings here, uh, this causes folks to look down on science fiction or maybe that the authors or publishers who choose to market their work as literary fiction are looking down on the genre themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I will withhold my personal opinion for now, but I do feel like it is a very nuanced conversation. Um, how do you feel about this author's thoughts Emily, noting uh, for our listeners that I'm asking this because your new book, Sea of Tranquility, is clearly in the realm of what many would consider science fiction. No, it's an interesting, it's an interesting conversation, and I can really see a lot of sides of this. Mm-hmm. Um, writers often don't really get a say in how they're marketed. So, you know, you mm-hmm. can you can condemn um you can condemn writers of certain books for kind of taking the literary fiction label when it's clearly sci-fi. It wasn't up to them. That was up to the publisher's marketing department. So that's one element in play. Another element is I kind of found myself, I I got into a little trouble um, not long after station 11 came out because I was insisting that it wasn't, that it not be labeled as sci-fi for a brief period. And the reason for that was because I felt like, are we really saying that fiction set in the future can't be literary? I think it has, mm-hmm. has, you know, as high a literary quality as a book set among, I don't know, Connecticut divorcees in the nineties or like whatever, you know, the literary fiction stereotype might be. So right. that's another side of it. Um, I will say, and I'm not at all suggesting that this author you're talking about falls into this camp at all. Um, something kind of interesting I've noticed is that, I feel like in the sci-fi community, there's often a sense of the literary fiction people looking down on them. But whereas I found that the literary fiction community is very open, you know, it's very welcoming to books that might have, might have typically been categorized as sci-fi or a Western or another genre. Um, The same isn't always true of the sci-fi community. It's felt much more closed to me. Um, the, The gatekeeping feels stronger. So, you know, that's another nuance. Um, Where I personally fall on this question is I find myself aligned with an idea that was put forward by Joshua Rothman on the New Yorker blog in 2014. And the context was he was talking about the books that have been nominated for a National Book Award, Station 11 among them. And he made what I think should be an obvious statement, but that somehow isn't, which is that, Mm. of course, a book can be more than one thing. So if we were to define literary fiction as fiction that has an emphasis on prose style and an emphasis on character development, I think it's fair to say that Sea of Tranquility and Station Eleven are both, you know, it's not either or, it's and. So I see both of those books at this point as both science fiction and literary fiction. Thank you so much, Emily. I think that I fall in line with your answer there myself. Um, So we have been talking around the content of your book with these questions, but I now want to dive right into it. I do want to note for our listeners that I would never spoil the content of this book without warning, but it is a book that in some ways is impossible to talk about without revealing some plot points that don't come up until around the halfway point of the book. Uh, So listeners, if you are sticklers for things like that, I recommend you pause the podcast here and come back to it when you have finished reading Sea of Tranquility. And I will give you a few more seconds to find your device, unlock it, and press that pause button. 
All right, here we go. Um, this question does not feature a spoiler, but Emily, let's talk about the character of Edwin. Uh, Edwin's name is double sainted as his name is Edwin, St. John, St. Andrew. Uh, first, um, why two saints here? And then a little more specifically, why St. John? Um, he is modeled loosely off mm -hmm. of one of my great grandfathers. Um, so I, I, one of my great grandfathers was just like, had the most extravagantly British name in the history of British names. Um, mm -hmm. Newell St. Andrew St. John. Although back then it would have been St. John because he was British. Um, mm -hmm. He came to Canada as an 18 year old remittance man around 1906, mm -hmm. give or take. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he left he left London under the cloud of some unspecified scandal. I have no idea what it was. Everybody was mm -hmm. very discreet. Mm -hmm. um, and then had the kind of rocky life that one might expect uh, of a person who had a beautiful classical education and absolutely zero skills for surviving mm -hmm. in any business or occupation whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'd just been interested for a while in, in that weird little cul-de-sac of Canadian immigration history, um, you know, the remittance men. And what that was about was the law in England at the time was that a family's entire estate had to go to the oldest son. And so what do you do with your second, third, and fourth sons? Uh, the solution that a lot of families came up with was to ship them off to the, the quote unquote colonies, you know, Canada, mm -hmm. Australia, uh, places like that. Yeah. So yeah, it was just an interesting little part of history for me. Um, I obviously never knew my great grandfather. I don't know what he was like as a person really. Um, mm -hmm. But there was something in intriguing to me about that milieu, you know, these incredibly educated, but um, I don't want to say useless. That's really pejorative, but I say very educated, but not very well suited to real life. You know, the situation that these people were in was, uh, it was interesting to me. Yeah, thank you so much for that answer, Emily. Um, Edwin, this character, as you've mentioned, um, by way of your great-grandfather's story, has been exiled from his home across seas to Canada because of a, a faux pas at a dinner party. Uh, this theme of exile runs throughout this novel. Uh, what about the theme of exile attracted you to write about it? And I know the theme of exile runs strong throughout literary history, not only in the works of literature themselves, but with the authors who wrote these books of literature. Um, is it fair to say that very few people write books because they feel themselves to be beautifully integrated into the world and part of it and no need to offer commentary? You know, um, I think of slight sense of alienation is probably something that a lot of writers have in common and a lot of people have in common. I think for writers that might be, I don't want to say necessary to the toolkit of writing because I really resist the idea that you have to suffer in some way to be an artist. I think that's BS. Um, but I think it's something that a lot of writers do have in common, myself included, this feeling of like struggling a little bit to understand the world in which we find ourselves and that can drive you to fiction. Mm -hmm. So I think it might be that state that leads a lot of writers to consider questions of exile. It's also for me, you know, thinking about um, issues of immigration where I was born and raised in Western Canada and then immigrated to the United States as a young adult. And mm -hmm. That is probably the lowest impact combination of countries for immigration, you know, in the, of all mm -hmm. the pairs of countries in the world. Canadians would not appreciate me saying that, but 
guys, it's true. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not that different down here. Um, but at the same time, you leave your homeland and then your homeland moves on without you. And I do sometimes have a sense at this point of my life in my life of not being entirely Canadian or entirely American. And I'm kind of fascinated by that state, by the state of falling through the cracks between countries. And I'm not implying that that's the same kind of exile as people who are forced to leave repressive regimes or, you know, anything of that nature or anything um, by which we usually understand that word exile, but it is a similar sense of displacement. So I think that might be part of where I'm coming from with that. And I think probably something I have in common with a lot of other writers. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Emily. Um, switching gears for a moment. Do you feel like a house can be haunted by failure or a business or anything other than a person, though I guess a business is a person in the USA, technically. <laughs> right. That's a horrible but true point. Yeah. yeah you know what? I do. Um, this isn't quite a house, but... Um, in Central Park or in Prospect Park in New York City, where I live, there are, there are a lot of uh, there are a number of archways that go underneath bridges, and you know there have been times in the city where the city's been incredibly dangerous, and those parks were unbelievably sketchy, and no sane person would go in after dark. I have a really hard time going through those tunnels because. I have this, um, this unshakable feeling that something terrible happened there, which, you know, I'm sure there were rapes and murders over the, over the decades and centuries. And that's a kind of hauntedness. And I think it is real. You know, I think sometimes you walk into a place and you just like a house, you just kind of get a bad feeling and, you know, who knows what happened inside the, that house, like terrible things happen in houses. So, yeah, I do think that's real. I think a place could be haunted by, um, yeah, by more than the ghost of a person, Maybe like the ghost of, of awfulness, if that makes sense. It does. Thank you so much, Emily. Um, I now want to ask you about writing uh, books that share a universe. Uh, I only have time to read the books that I'm featuring in podcasts at this moment in my life. And thankfully you did speak to me about the glass hotel. So of course I recognized straight away that this novel sea of tranquility is connected to the glass hotel. And then I did my research and discovered that all of your novels are uh, connected in some ways. Um, Can you talk to us about writing these fantastic novels that are not only connected, but that also stand alone as independent works. What type of notes does it take to pull this off? Or is it something that you have planned since you started publishing? Uh, There's no plan and no notes. (laughs) You know what happens is, so sometimes I'll just fall in love with a particular character. Mm -hmm. Like I really loved Miranda from Station Eleven. She just kind of spoke Mm -hmm. to me as as a character. So I knew that I wanted to feature her again in the Glass Hotel. And part of that project was featuring a completely different part of her life. You know, in Station Eleven, uh, more than novel than the TV series, um, you really mostly just see her as a graphic novelist. Mm-hmm. Whereas in The Glass Hotel, you see her as a shipping executive. And yeah, just getting a more nuanced view of a character and getting to spend time with her again was a pleasure. So sometimes it's that. I just like a character. I want to bring them back. Um, with Sea of Tranquility, there are two characters, um, actually no, three characters, Paul, Morella, and Vincent, who all appear in the Glass Hotel. And what that was about was I realized that this was going to be a book that moved through time. And 
I knew I would have this section in the far past. So the book opens in 1912. The next section is 2020 because I did want to write about, about this moment I'm fascinated by in the very early moments of the, of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. Once I realized that there was going to be a 2020 section, I just, I just realized, you know what? I've got this whole cast of really interesting, already developed characters just kind of waiting in the wings. I'm just going to bring them on and, you know, see if we can spend more time with them and, and, you know, get more out of them, which is partly laziness on my part. You know, it's, uh, it's easier to reuse characters than create whole new ones. Mm. Um, but at the same time, they, they were good characters for that, for that section. So yeah, sometimes it's just, just a matter of like, who do you have in your back pocket from previous works who might be interesting to bring in here? Yeah. Thank you so much, Emily. Uh, listeners, we are going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Emily St. John Mandel. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Emily St. John Mandel, author of Sea of Tranquility, which is published by our friends at Knopf. Emily... I had a wonderful creative writing teacher when I was an undergrad. Uh, her name is Marcel Krickenberger. She was a grad student at the time, uh, but was a better teacher of writing than anyone on the tenured or visiting faculty at the university at the time, not because the faculty was bad, but because uh, Marcel was that good. Uh, she would give us exercises that focused on the senses, write a story where all of the descriptions are based on the sense of smell, for example, mm -hmm. or sound. Sound plays a very important role in Sea of Tranquility. Uh, can you tell us about this focus on sound in the novel and maybe talk about writing about and around the senses in general? Yeah, sure. Um, I think there's a fallacy that you can't do it, which, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's Wynton Marsalis had a quote. It was something to the effect of writing about music is like dancing about architecture, mm -hmm. which as a trained dancer who studied choreography, I don't really understand that point. Of course right. you could make choreography about architecture. That is totally doable. <laughs> yeah. I feel the same way about writing about music. Mm -hmm. I've always loved music. I, I've played piano. Um, I played for years and years and then, um, you know, just picked it up again in adulthood. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about the idea of two moments in time corrupting each other with this book. And it was kind of from this, I guess I've been interested in the, uh, the simulation hypothesis for a while, which for anybody who's not familiar is what it sounds like. It's this really fun theory that maybe we're all living in a simulation. And one of the things I love about it is you can find very, very intelligent people to very persuasively argue either side of that coin. Um, I kind of love the idea. And as I was thinking about 
like how to, as I was just kind of trying to wrap my head around it, I was thinking, well, maybe the analogy here is suppose you have a computer sitting on a desk with a lamp next to it. In theory, one file on the computer could corrupt another file on the computer. That file could not corrupt the lamp or the desk or the room or, you know, the sunlight outside. And if it did, that would be evidence that the entire situation was a computer or say a, a simulation. So with the violin music, I was trying to think of a way where moments in time might corrupt each other. I thought, well, what if somebody were playing a violin in one time period and somebody heard it in the wrong century? So yeah, that, that was where that stemmed from. And, and yeah, just thinking about a kind of clear way to show that that's like something's kind of awry in the, in the universe of this novel. Yeah, very good. Uh, thank you so much, Emily. And um, I was going to talk to you about simulations later, but let's go ahead and do it now. Um, and ben, listeners again, fun. right. Uh, this is where some specific uh, spoiler related content is coming listeners. Uh, nothing about the end of the novel again, just from about the halfway point or so. So consider this your second warning. Um, Let's talk some more about the idea that we are living in a computer simulation. Versions of this idea go pretty far back uh, before computers were invented. We had the brain in a vat theory, some ideas by Descartes, some other things uh, that predate him, even I am sure. Um, first, Emily, do you think we are living in a computer simulation? And second, can you explain for some of our listeners who may be aware some more about this thought, um, maybe some of the people who make convincing arguments what those are and why they believe it is likely that we are in fact living in a simulation? Yeah, sure. You're forcing me to remember research I did years ago, so I'm just going to do my best. <laughs> yeah. So I, an argument for it, and I mm -hmm. might completely mess this up because it has been some time, is given the speed at which our computer technology has evolved over, you know, consider the last century, it's absolutely dazzling. Mm -hmm. um, we might expect that it might continue to evolve in ever more exponential ways. Mm -hmm. And if you take that into account, it's, it, could, it could be very possible that we're living in a simulation or even improbable that we're not living in a simulation. You know, if you consider that, people with unimaginably more advanced computing technology than we have, you know, quantum computers and the rest of it. Um, you know, if they start running simulations, there's, you know, there's no reason to believe that we're in the real world, so to speak. So that, that's, you know, the, um, I did not, I did not nail that argument because it's been some years. <laughs> that's that's the, the, uh, the basic idea. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if we're living in a simulation and, what I eventually came to and thinking it through and writing this book is I don't think it matters. Like, I, I feel like I could imagine it being psychologically or philosophically troubling to a person to, to know that they're living in a simulation. Mm -hmm. If you find out tomorrow that this is a simulation, um, does that mean your life was meaningless? I don't think it does. And then mm -hmm. if you think, well, we do already accept a high level of, I guess, artificiality in our lives, um, that doesn't make our lives less meaningful. You know, like you might think of a city as a simulated environment in a lot of ways. Um, does that mean your life is less meaningful in a city than it would be if you were a subsistence farmer? Like, absolutely not. You know, it just like falls apart. So yeah, we might be living in a simulation, but I don't think it matters. 
I think, I think our choices still matter and how we choose to conduct our lives either way. Yeah. And have you, Emily, ever experienced any uh, Mandela effect type of things personally that make you think if we were living in a simulation that the program may be broken? Right. Like a glitch in the matrix. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I, I did once take a really weird photograph. Um, mm-hmm. So years and years ago, my husband and I were subletting this apartment that we had uh, on the Upper West Side. And I was trying to get a picture of the loft bed, which was really hard because the room was tiny. So I was kind of balanced on the radiator with both hands on my camera and just took a series of really quick shots to try to show this loft. And in one of the shots, but not the shot on either side of it in the sequence, um, there is a translucent white hooded figure, um, Mm. which I can't unsee or (laughs) argue. It's just, yeah, maybe Mm. it's some kind of extremely hooded looking reflection of light. Anything's possible. Um, but it sure looks like something that shouldn't be there. And I don't know. What is that? Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm not, I'm kind of agnostic on the question of whether, you know, whether there are glitches in the matrix or whether there's a matrix. Yeah. I always sneak back to a moment, um, in time when I managed a uh, border store in union square in San Francisco. So listeners who are familiar with borders will know how long ago that was. Cause it's been a while since we've had one of those. Um, when I, I think the staff of the store was about 80 to hundred people, depending on the time of the year, but, um, a customer came in looking for a Berenstein Bears book and then like no one on the staff could find it in her computer because everyone was spelling it with an E instead of an A. Yeah, that one's weird, right? Yeah. I read about mm-hmm. that recently as an argument yeah. for multiple universes that everybody mm-hmm. who remembers it with an A was ported in from the other universe or vice versa. Right. It, it is really strange. Yeah, yeah, really strange moment, especially amongst a crew of about 80 booksellers. Um, Let's now talk about time travel. Emily, how does time travel work in this novel, Sea of Tranquility? You know, the problem with time travel is it doesn't work, just kind of like generally speaking. Yeah. So um, I've always loved time travel stories, and I wanted to write one for a long time. But um, what you fall into is this sort of problem of the infinite loop. So, mm-hmm. you know, if 10 minutes from now I jump on a time machine and go to Denver in 1910, then wasn't I always going to get in that time machine and go to Denver in 1910? And then you've created this kind of circular situation, Mm -hmm. which is pretty destructive to questions of cause and effect and free will. And without cause and effect and free will, um, it's really hard to write a fictional character. (laughs) They kind of need to have those things. Um, So I felt that for myself, the only way I could make a time travel narrative work was by layering on a whole other level of weirdness. And that's, Mm -hmm. um, that's a simulation hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So a way to make it work for myself was just kind of address the elephant in the room and have a character say in the year 2400, we don't understand why time travel works as well as it does. Um, Mm. We don't understand why it's not always devastating to the timeline and why the timeline seems to somehow magically repair itself. We think the fact it works at all might mean that there's something else going on and maybe it's evidence that we're living in a simulation. So that was, Mm. that was the only way I could get it to work. Yeah. And I want to um, push this idea a little bit further. I'm actually also flying into Denver on Saturday. Hopefully I won't emerge in um, 1910, even though that would be a drag. Yeah. Yeah, Right. Um, So Emily, if we are living in a computer simulation, is time travel really 
time travel? In other words, uh, how would time be conceptualized in a computer simulation? Are stories still linear in a program, like in a video game? Uh, Or would you really just be like jumping from one line of code to another? You'd be jumping from one line of code to another, wouldn't you? Um, That's what I would think. Yeah. I have a good friend who in difficult moments in her life, she relies on the idea that some people have that linear time doesn't really make sense. And what she tells herself is this all works out in the future because I already live there. And I really Mm -hmm. kind of love that idea. Mm -hmm. Um, There is something to it. You know, I, I don't, I don't know what time travel means because I don't know what time means, I guess is where Mm -hmm. I'd come to on that. Um, Yeah. I I don't know how linear it is. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That I've, I've asked um, a few people the same question in preparation for this interview and I've gotten similar answers. Like what is time? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. It's such a rabbit hole and it's so interesting. Yeah. Um, Emily, this is one of those obvious questions that I think you're going to be asked a whole lot. Um, The character in your novel, the writer character, Olive, wrote a book called Marion Bad. Um, How much of this character is you and how much of Marion Bad is Station Eleven? Uh, The literature professor who lives inside of me is cringing at this question, Um, but not only the details of the novel, but some of the information provided in your afterword suggests that this character might be you. She is extremely autobiographical. Um, (laughs) And that was actually the first part of the book that I started writing. Mm -hmm. Um, I've never, I've never really gone in for personal essays. I guess I am on principle. I like the idea of having a private life. like, I've, I love reading other people's personal essays. Like, Hey, if you want to open up your soul, like uh, I'm in, but um, Mm -hmm. yeah, for myself, it had never interested me, but Mm -hmm. I, but I was kind of interested in, in autofiction kind of as a form. And this felt like a little bit of a balancing act because on the one hand, I feel such immense gratitude for this life. I just, it feels improbable to me. Um, And at the same time, people say really interesting things to me on tour. And the word interesting is doing a ton of heavy lifting in that sentence. Um, I might actually mean sexist, really, if we're being honest here. So I had had all of these really, really irritating and sometimes kind of just like dazzlingly weird interactions on the road. Mm -hmm. And I did want to write about it. So in the months leading up to the pandemic, I had started working on this autofiction project and I wasn't sure that it would ever become anything. You know, my, um, I sometimes, because I don't write from an outline, sometimes I'll just start writing and, uh, you know, and just see what happens. And, Sometimes that becomes part of a finished work and sometimes it doesn't. Um, So I thought it might just be that, but then, yeah, then the pandemic hit and I, I realized I could make it part of this larger sort of pandemic related work. Mm -hmm. And I liked the idea of putting, uh, looking at auto fiction through a sci-fi lens. So Mm -hmm. the only fictional parts of that section are the science or the sci-fi parts. You know, I don't Mm -hmm. actually live on a moon colony, for example. Um, Everything else is completely real. Those are all things that people have literally said to me on the road. Uh, The difference is, is that in the moment, sometimes you're so shocked that you can't come up with the, the, the replies. So when a woman in Dallas said to me, you must have a very kind husband to take care of your daughter while you do this, Uh, which there's mm -hmm. so much to unpack there. (laughs) It's like, you can just file that under the list of things that, uh, 
one might imagine that a male business traveler just doesn't hear. Um, in the moment, I was just sort of like, oh, but what? <laughs> you didn't say anything. Um, but in the uh, in the book, Olive actually like has a reply. So that's the only part of those interactions that's fictional. Yeah. Thank you so much, Emily. Um, a couple more questions here. One, you wrote something in this novel that I have often thought about myself uh, regarding why post-apocalyptic stories and thoughts have such a grip on so many people. Uh, can you talk about this and, and why you think this is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a fun part of writing those autofiction sections was giving all of my Station Eleven lecture, which I delivered all over the United States for years. Mm -hmm. And I did have a whole long riff on that. So if you talk to a lot of people about post-apocalyptic fiction, you'll get a lot of competing theories about why it's mm -hmm. so popular. And some of them are really interesting. Um, there's a theory that it has to do with economic inequality, this idea that in a world that can feel fundamentally unfair. You know, maybe on some level, we long to just blow it all up and start over. Mm -hmm. um, there might be something to that. Um, someone suggested to me that it has to do with heroism, you know, that we have this longing to be a hero. And we have this idea that in some kind of desperate calamity, like civilization collapsing around us, perhaps we would rise to the occasion and become a leader and have the opportunity to be, you know, a true hero of some kind. Mm -hmm. The theory that I've heard the most often is that it's about the climate crisis, that we, um, you know, that we channel our anxiety about this moment that we find ourselves in um, into the fiction that we read. So it's kind of like a safe way of, of, dealing, of dealing with it and kind of processing it. The problem I have with that idea is that it seems to me that we've always believed that it's the end of the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as an example of that, I had a really interesting conversation with my mother a few years ago where she was talking about how guilty she felt bringing children into the world in the late seventies and early eighties in Western mm -hmm. Canada. Yeah. And like, take a minute to let that sink in. Like, can you imagine a more tranquil time or place ever in the history of the world? <laughs> but right. mm -hmm. at the same time, that was, of course, the height of the Cold War. And there was, mm -hmm. you know, a justified concern about nuclear annihilation. So my point is just there's always something. You know, I think, and here I am slipping into the Station Eleven lecture. Uh, I think we yeah. do have this tendency to think that we're living at the climax of the story, like at the mm -hmm. peak of history. Um, so when... I think about, well, I think it's been approximately 15 years that uh, post-apocalyptic fiction has really been a, like a big thing. Um, mm -hmm. I'm blanking on the publication date, but I, I think of The Road by Cormac McCarthy as kind of the part at the, maybe the beginning of a, of a wave. Yeah, it was around 2004, I believe. Right, okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so if I think about it in terms of, well, what has changed in that time period? Mm -hmm. I think we have to look to our technology and you know, our technology is wonderful. Like, I love that we can do this from different cities. And mm -hmm. I love that I can FaceTime with my mom and, you know, all these other wonderful things that our devices give us. Mm -hmm. I don't love that the internet lives in my pocket and that I'm reachable at any moment at all hours of the day. And I sometimes think that our interest in post-apocalyptic fiction, that maybe it goes back to a kind of secret longing for a less technological world, you know, that it might be that simple. Um, 
that maybe part of the appeal of Station Eleven is that they're moving through a world without cell phones. And that sounds that sounds shallow, but I do think I think it might be ambivalence about our technology at the root of it. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. And I only have a probably slightly inaccurate but ballpark uh, recall of the publication date of the road because I was trying to think how long it's been since Cormac McCarthy published something being that he has a couple of new books coming out this year right Um, of course yeah yeah well thank you Emily uh finally and listeners I could talk about this novel all day I wish I was able to but I know Emily has many demands on her time and this podcast can only be so long but maybe in an alternate universe we can do multiple episodes on this book Uh, it is deserving of such treatment but Emily Thank you. Um, On some level, this novel, Sea of Tranquility, is many things, but on some level, it is a pandemic novel that is in conversation with a pandemic novel. Uh, One written prior to COVID-19, one written after. You write in this novel that in any given crowd, several people will inevitably be incurably sick and several others will have recently lost someone they love to illness. My question, Emily, Uh, as this is obviously something you have thought about and written about um, over several years, is how do you talk about a pandemic? How do you write about a pandemic? How do you intellectualize a pandemic when you know this about your audience, that you are going to be speaking to several people who may have been um, drastically influenced or impacted in one way or another? Um, And not just you, Emily, but the collective you, the collective we, all of us. How do we talk about these things and make art about these things with so many people affected by them deeply and painfully in so many ways? Um, Very sensitively. I think, you know, that's the short answer that there was a section of the station 11 lecture where I talked about our fear of pandemics, um, in the context of our fear of chaos, that pandemic illness frightens us because it's chaotic. You know, it's not always predictable. Mm -hmm. We really see that now. It's not always obvious why one person dies of COVID and the person sitting next to them had a bad cold for a few days. You know, it's, it really isn't. Um, yeah. And when I got to that point in the lecture, I would look out over the audience and I would always see a few faces where I felt like I was speaking to them in a way that resonated in a painful personal way, uh, because there are always going to be people in the audience who are, who are dealing with illness in a very existential and very, very awful way. When I, when I talk about pandemics, it always comes down to talking about them as this historic inevitability. You know, um, COVID-19 was shocking to us because we hadn't suffered from a pandemic in this part of the world for a hundred years. There was always going to be another pandemic and there will be something else after COVID-19 and something else after that. And, you know, it, it didn't have to be this bad. The political response matters. It really matters. Um, but there was always going to be something. At the same time, the kind of hopeful note that I found in that fairly bleak picture was that we're all descended from the survivors of some pandemic or another. Um, they are a part of human history. But we have survived, you know, as, as a society, as a culture, um, as a species, I guess, is maybe a better way of putting it. So, yeah, you know, uh, life life continues. I guess that's, that's what I always eventually came to when talking about pandemics. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Emily. And thank you so much 
for writing this novel, which will undoubtedly be one of the best of 2022. And thank you for coming on again. The literature nerd in me who just wants to read your books um, <laughs> cannot thank you enough for allowing me the time to do so. Uh, listeners, I've been speaking with Emily St. John Mandel, author of Sea of Tranquility, which is published by our friends at Knopf. Emily, thank you for joining me. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for interviewing me. Once again, I would like to thank Emily St. John Mandel for joining me. Signed copies of Sea of Tranquility can be purchased from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.